I want to welcome everyone. I'm Dr. Peter Malinowski, clinical psychologist, trauma therapist, podcaster, blogger, co-founder and president of Souls and Hearts, and I am your host and guide in this Interior Integration for Catholics podcast. It's both an honor and a pleasure to be with you, my live audience, uh, for this episode. And I really want each of you to be able to taste the height and depth and breadth and warmth and the light of the love of God, especially God the Father and Mary, our mother, our spiritual parents, our primary parents. I'm here to help you embrace your identity as a beloved little son or daughter of God and of Mary. That is what this podcast is all about. Souls and hearts, what we do, we shore up the natural foundation of human formation for the spiritual life. We know from St. Thomas Aquinas that grace perfects nature, and we are all about offering you the best resources on human formation grounded in a Catholic understanding of the human person. We live out that mission, new ways of understanding yourself, fresh conceptualizations informed by the best of human formation resources, the best of psychology. And I am so glad that you're here with me on this mission to really more deeply understand ourselves and to more deeply understand each other. This is episode 123 of Interior Integration for Catholics. It's titled Relating Well with Narcissistic Family Members. We are recording live with our audience on October 11th, 2023. And this episode will be released on October 16th, 2023. And I am so pleased to have Dr. Jerry Crete, licensed marriage and family therapist from Atlanta, Georgia. He is the founder and owner of Transfiguration Counseling, which is now operating in three states, has seven therapists and a life coach. He's the former president of the Catholic Psychotherapy Association. He's been adjunct faculty at different universities over the last several years. He is the co-founder of Souls and Hearts with me. We co-founded Souls and Hearts in 2019. We did the Be With the Word podcast together for a year. He's also the author of Litanies of the Heart, Relieving Post-Traumatic Stress and Calming Anxiety Through Healing Our Parts. That is being published by Sophia Press. It will come out on January 16th, 2024 super excited about that. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. So Jerry, he's a dear colleague. He's a dear partner in Souls and Hearts, and he's an even dearer friend. So excited to have you with us today, Jerry. And this is the sixth and final episode in our sub-series on narcissism. We've been covering narcissism in the Interior Integration for Catholics podcast, and this is an opportunity to bring it all together to get down to where the rubber meets the road, where we really talk about how do we apply what we've been learning? How do we live out what we've been learning in good relationships with our family members, with our friends, maybe coworkers, people around us, our neighbors who might have parts with strong narcissistic tendencies. So that is what this is all about. And so without any further ado, I want to in, introduce you to Dr. Jerry. Hey, Peter. Thank you for that <laughs> really nice introduction. And uh, I'm thrilled to be here, too. And 
I will say this, your series on narcissism, I just think was excellent. And uh, I, it's taken me a little while to catch up. Uh, <laughs> there's so much material there, but I, I really love it. And if I can dive right in, if that's all right. Um, By all means, just, so, just a heads up, we're going to do about 15 minutes, Dr. Jerry and I, of just a kind of conversation where, where Dr. Jerry, I think you wanted to give us some of the highlights, uh, the most important things that you'd like us to know. And then we're going to open this up for more than an hour of Q&A. So we're going to have more than an hour to kind of go back and forth questions that you all have in our audience. So yeah, take it away, Jerry. Tell us what I'm, I'm so, I'm so excited that this is the capstone of the whole sub-series. I'm just so, I'm like giddy. I have parts that are just giddy to have you with me. So, so uh, thank you for being here. Yeah, awesome. I, I, mis I must admit, like, I loved when you talked about the subsystems with that parts operated in. And when you, your Toblerone example with the multiple <laughs> parts subsystems was really made my marriage and family therapist systems thinking parts <laughs> thrilled. <laughs> because I don't know how much people know here or, or would know, but as a marriage and family therapist, we tend to operate differently than most psychologists and counselors who are so only mostly focused on on, you know, the intrapsychic dynamics and marriage and family therapists and, and often clinical social workers do this too, have an emphasis on looking at the environment and looking at the system that the person lives in and the multiple systems that they live in. So you were really describing multiple systems within the interior of a person. And so I love that. So I just want to start by saying how, how thrilling that was. And you did a great job of showing those different dynamics, go, the different parts that were operating together and interacting together. So I was excited, first of all, by that. <laughs> well, beautiful. Yeah. I, I think that what I'd like to get into, hoping to get into today, is just where the rubber meets the road a little bit in terms of interactions, because we can understand the dynamic, you know, in a family member, like let's say a spouse, <laughs> but what do we do? Because, you know, it really isn't, you can't just, unless the person is doing therapy with you and IFS informed therapy with you, then you can't just point out those things in the other person without some kind of terrible, probably terrible backlash, right? So I'm really interested in getting at that. And from a systems perspective, you would be thinking about what interventions you would have to do within a family system. And so you would be thinking like, in other words, any change you make to the system, the family system is going to have an effect to everybody. So any change that you make within your internal system is going to affect everybody, every part one way in some way or another. And just like if it was a factory, like if it was the Hershey's chocolate factory and you do one thing to the process of making the chocolate bar, it's going to affect that, the, the output. So, but I would also posit that perhaps if you are in a relationship, so you're in a system with somebody else, even if it's just a couple, that any change that you make to your internal system is going to have an effect on their internal system, whether they're fully conscious of it or not. Right. So I'm going to throw that out. What are your, do you have any thoughts or reactions to yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, you know, I think it's really worth noting that Richard Schwartz was a marriage and family therapist, right? The, the, the originator of, of internal family systems. And he saw 
that people took these systems, these these family of origin systems, and they brought them inside. That's why it's called internal family systems. And so not only do we have, you know, our external systems, but there are different ways in which we bring these parts of other people inside of us, including our spouses, including our children, including our parents. And so, yeah, so I'm super excited about, you know, how we begin to understand, you know, more clearly how we can relate with others that begin to activate us. Right? right, because there's a lot of activation that happens, you know, in these difficult dynamics when narcissism is is coming up. Yeah, and so there's a few things though I want to put as a caveat or a or a raise as a an issue to be aware of or to reflect on before engaging in any, as I called it, intervention. And one of those things, of course, I know you've you've already reinforced probably before, but you can't actually set out to change the other person <laughs> and <laughs> as tempting as that is and and, and and in other words that would be having an agenda so as soon as you know you're doing that you know it's a part that's kind of blended possibly and, and activated there but you can't really go in expecting change and i know that's so hard i'm not saying change won't happen I'm just saying your motivation, you're going to have to be checking your motivation in order to do that. And one of the things that is really difficult is when, how do you respond and take care of yourself when you're with a person who is in some way, I don't know what the right words are, abusive, toxic, and so on. And how do you take care of yourself? Because you really can't become their therapist right, in an effort to change them. You really can't expect change. And you can go in being self-led, you can as best as you can, you can go in interacting with them in a positive way. But a lot of care and attention, I think beforehand, has to be taken to how are you going to take care of your parts before you interact with somebody who may have narcissistic tendencies or whatnot, during any interaction and mm -hmm. after the interaction. Mm -hmm. Right. And and I, I think that you would it, you would have to be a little prepared. And this is how I'm going to I'm going to relate it. Um, I'm going to make an analogy that may be more extreme than needed. But just to make the point, when I because I do I'm a trauma therapist as well. I do EMDR and all sorts of trauma right related work. And often I will work with somebody who's had an abuse history, maybe a sexual abuse history or physical abuse or whatnot. And maybe from let's say it's a parent well is the abuser and now they're an adult and they they want to um resolve it in some way and they may they get to a point in their work that they actually want to confront the abuser and so i do a lot of work before ever that happens i do a lot of work with that person working through what it is they need to say a lot of work related to not to expect anything from that other person uh, and, and to be expecting possible negative. We want a positive, but we, we don't know. We're, we're, there's no control over that person. There's no way of necessarily knowing. And so we want to be prepared for whatever may come. And then in the moment and then afterward that there's a lot of support. And I know that's kind of an extreme example to use to, to compare it. But if, if the person is uh, is especially... Um, negative like you listed in the gaslighting episode all sorts of 
a lot of them very toxic language being used and i could argue abusive mm -hmm. emotionally abusive language mm -hmm. so uh, if you're in a relationship with somebody that is doing that and you're for whatever reason you can't just leave the relationship or whatever you're wanting to work on it you know there are lots of reasons why people do and i've been given up hope perhaps but there needs to be care given to protecting the various parts of that person's system setting boundaries for that and 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 preparing them for how to respond to continued emotionally abusive behavior so I have that big concern of mine around this whole project. Right, right. Yeah, there is not. So I, what I hear you saying is that there's not 10 quick tips to resolving narcissism in the family, you know, mm -hmm. or, or with with a, with a spouse or with with an aging parent or something like that. And I really I really echo that the importance of taking care of your own system, taking care of your own parts and really being recollected having a sense of, of of peace and recognizing kind of what the limits of what you can reasonably bear are in interacting with the other person you know mm -hmm. really paying attention to that it just seems so critical to me because as long as one person can remain recollected the likelihood of something spinning out of control goes way down you know as long as one person can when 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 both people in an interaction are blended and taken over by their parts saint thomas aquinas would say dominated by their passions then you're likely to get a really negative interaction going right okay and so one thing that was occurring to me i'd love to hear your thoughts on this peter when when we're working with somebody so if a person's working with their own parts right mm -hmm. a manager part or a protector part maybe a, let's just say uh or a firefighter part let's just say whatever that protector is is behaving in a negative way uh, and, and and you get into that recollection, you spend some time and you, you know, maybe with a therapist or whatnot, but you are working to understand the true intention and the true need of that part. And you, 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 you recognize it, maybe you ally to some extent, befriend that part. And, and then you, and then once you're in that space, right, then you can address like why that behavior you know, what are they, why are they holding on to that behavior? What's the, what are they afraid of if they don't respond in this like really toxic or negative way? Right. And so there's that sort of process. And so I wondered if you're interacting with somebody with this, like, as you said, narcissistic tendencies, you're probably, you are definitely interacting with a, with a, with some sort of protector part <laughs> in that person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so if you are able, and, and and all my previous caveats would apply <laughs> but if you're if you're able to um do for that person what you do for your own protectors so be self-led enough that you can um put aside whatever darts whatever things that may have been thrown at you you know metaphorically mm -hmm. or verbally <laughs> and and actually try to ask questions in a way of, with curiosity to understand what is the real intention. Let's say it's a spouse. What's the real intention of my spouse right now? This part of my spouse. I know they're saying things I don't like. Mm -hmm. I know it's hurtful language maybe even or gaslighting type language. What is the real intention? Am I able to ask a question from that curious place, right? 
Yeah. And I, 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 again, there's no guarantees it'll work, but I think it has a greater possibility of, of actually being productive. Yeah. And yeah. that maybe with that person, if you, they realize, oh, you care about what I care about here. We both have the same intention, actually. Right. And so then like that, there might, like their intention, like you were explaining in your previous podcasts in the series, their intention is often to, to take care of some deep insecurity, right? Mm -hmm. Some deep attachment wound. It's almost always. And so if, if that's the case and you're allying it, now you're not replacing their inmost self helping their parts. You can't do that, but you can at least set the stage for doing that, I wonder if in the process of doing that, that some natural unblending would start to happen in the other person. Absolutely. Because, you know, Richard Schwartz talks about how self pulls for self, right? So if a person is in self, that's the way he would say it, I would say recollected, it invites recollection in the other person, right? Mm -hmm. Because parts that are uh, within you are less likely to blend, take over, and polarize with parts of the other person, right? Mm. That gets us into these dances, into these cycles that are often really predictable, you know, mm -hmm. because the way that parts blend and take over and begin to interact and, and, are, and are protecting often follow a very similar trajectory. And you can recognize these cycles in relationships, so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I would see that as almost in, in inserting some sort of intervention. Now, when I when I um, think about systems theory, marriage and family therapy approaches, a lot of the greats, Virginia Satir, Whitaker, there's there's a number. Of, oh. <laughs> um, a lot of, a lot of the greats are very creative in their approaches. And when they work, when they have a family and like the entire family is present in a family therapy session with these people that these, these, these greats in this tradition, they do incredible creative things. Now they've got them there. They have all the parts of the family that are agreeing at least to be present. They may, may have different levels of commitment and, 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 and desire to be there, but they're, they're there. And so, but you can play with it. And I, so I be, so I was, when I was listening to you talk about the different parts of the subsystems within the system, within a person, what would it be like to creatively play with those parts? Like inviting a part to take on a role they've never had before mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. and, and seeing, and just let's experiment, let's experiment. What would happen if that, you know, tough, you know, that aggressive protector, right? That, what do you, the feisty one or what have you. What if he took on the role, uh, or she took on the role of, of empathizer? Let's mm -hmm. try that out. What would it be like? And let's try empathizing with this other person, you know, your partner's part that's, you know, this, whatever, pick a part. And, and just like, let's, let's just experiment. Like we're not, you know what I mean? Like the, the, the freedom to be playful mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with our parts. Now you have to have a cooperating person to do this with. <laughs> Right, right. It's already <laughs> probably been some work done. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. But it just got me thinking about how wonderful that could be and how exciting Absolutely. that could be. Absolutely. Right? And because I, I know like the tradition, you know, uh, a lot of the, some of the marriage and family therapy tradition comes out of Jacob Marino and, and the psychodrama stuff. And I know that's influenced, you know, ego state mm -hmm. therapy, probably IFS too. And in the sense that like, 
play is so important as an aspect of of getting people out of their rigid roles mm -hmm. and experimenting and interacting in new ways and feeling what that feels like and how new that is and how exciting that can be. And I feel like for, for someone who has the narcissistic tendencies you described, that would be like maybe liberating, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? And maybe that could only happen in therapy. I don't know, maybe that can't happen with, with, with a, you know, easily with a couple. But is, sorry, that was just what was bubbling up for me when I was. <laughs> well, well, I would really like at this point to just open it up to our audience to raise a hand if you're on the screen or to raise an electronic hand. Let us know that you have a question that you would like to be able to to give voice to uh, in this in this episode. Or if there's something that you know might feel a little more private, might feel a little more comfortable sharing it in the chat function in the Zoom, well, we can certainly address it uh, there as well. If if you'd like to just send it to me anonymously, I can certainly pick it up and we can we can go from there. So just inviting you to to be thinking about those questions and bringing them here because such a wealth of experience with Dr. Jerry. One of the interesting things I will tell you, a little factoid, um, is that Dr. Jerry is in a depth psychology group with me. It's been around for a lot of years. And it consists of six psychologists and Jerry, who's a licensed marriage and family therapist. And he has helped us out so much in just being able to, to be able to think about ourselves as a system, to be able to interact and to be able to help us connect and deepen our relationships, our friendships. And so it's been amazing to have that alternative kind of perspective coming in from, from, from your marriage and family therapy background. So I'm really grateful for you uh, bringing that to us and helping us to connect more deeply. So. Mm, thank you for that. Yeah. Just a reminder that we don't do like clinical consultations when, when we're doing this. We can't provide clinical services, but it is an opportunity for you to be able to talk about the themes, to ask questions, to be able to, to relate some of your personal experiences if you choose. And you know what? I really just want to encourage folks, even if the question is maybe hard to put in words, to, to just allow it to be what it is. You don't have to say things perfectly. We don't have to have things polished. If it's not clear in the, in your mind, we can, we can sort through some of that with you as well. We have so, a hand up. We, we have, have a hand up. Yes, Elizabeth. absolutely. Okay. So what if the thought, even I'm someone who, when everybody was calling everyone toxic and a narcissist, I, I was just astounded. And I thought I will never do that. Like, human beings are you know sacred <laughs> creatures like because we're images of god and we're called to be an image of god we're sons and daughters of god um but i finally got to the point where it's like oh i think i need some help so um what it what happens when even the thought of giving the other person more space and more consideration when it's always been about them just doesn't seem possible <laughs> i don't know just the thought of giving the person more consideration i think you use the term flooded like i just you know i, I feel very agitated flooded i don't know I, it sends me 
um, it's like I'm crawling out of my skin kind of thing, like just the thought of that. So what do you do when you're at that point? But I see, I understand, my mind understands what you're saying. I feel like that's what I've always done. And I've always been curious and always open to playing about playing, you know, knowing the other person. But what if like, just even that is, yeah, I don't want to, I think I'm being repetitive. <laughs> did, did I, that, did that, I don't even know if I'm making sense. <laughs> you, I, you made very good sense to me. I definitely hear you. And I, you're raising something that was in my mind when I was making those caveats as well before. Uh, I would say what I hear is a part of you speaking even now has been deeply wounded and hurt. And so I would put a priority on taking care of that part before um, engaging or giving more space, as you put it, to somebody that has been in any way abusive emotionally or whatever abusive in some way. I really think that's a priority. If, if, for, if you're in a relationship where you're wanting to repair it and it's at all safe to even try to repair it, then I would think it would be very important to work with those hurt parts and give them the attention they need. And it's not going to come from that person. It's going to, you know, I would just, I would suggest your own therapy or your own work, somehow work that you're doing with that and, and, and get to a place when you're ready to do that. And it's okay to feel like you're not ready. It's okay to not want to give them space. Uh, and do that prematurely. I think it sometimes, and I know I've been uh, guilty of this, is sometimes it's like my Christian, I don't know if it's a Catholic standard bearer, I don't really call it that, but like my Christian, it's still a Christian good boy part of me, uh, is maybe sometimes too quick to forgive or too quick to overlook or oh, too yeah. quick to like, mm -hmm. and, 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 and I, before I've done my own processing or before I've had to set proper boundaries, and then I live a little bit to regret it, right? Yeah. Because then I feel like, oh, they just took advantage of my Christianity or my niceness. Mm -hmm. And that's not okay, right? So anyway, that, that, so what you said really, really speaks to me. I, I get that. I'm fortunate I'm in a very good marriage and I have been, uh, but I did grow up in a family where I experienced that all the time. And, uh, and I watched that happen in my family all the time. So I'm very sensitive to somebody feeling the way that you just described. And I, and I would just add to like, I, when I say toxic, for example, or even narcissist to describe a person, I really don't mean toxic as in the person is inherently toxic. I would say the dynamic is toxic. I would say the behavior is narcissistic. I, I should have probably worded it that way before. So that is actually a really good point. I always hold to the fact that that person is redeemable, that that person is inherently has, you know, created in the image of God, just like each of us. And there's always hope, but it isn't always the responsibility. It isn't the person's, the responsibility of the person who's been hurt to repair the person who's doing the hurting. So I do want to make that really clear. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. I, I do. Yeah. I agree with everything you said. It's a, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, it's like some, it's like, um, I think 
I noticed that I think it's like I woke up through spiritual direction and all that. I woke up and realized one day, like, oh, kind of been living a, I've been living a delusion. Mm. Um, so it's kind of hard all of a sudden mm -hmm. to see things that I just didn't want to see before. Mm. So, but so now, and all of a sudden, it's all it's just flooding in really fast and hard. <laughs> so that, but I'm, I'm I have to remain hopeful. Thank you for your response. Thank you for sharing. I really appreciate it. I think we have another hand up with Shannon. My question is when dealing with, yeah, narcissistic family members, how much do you communicate the boundaries that you are setting to them? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> sometimes I've, I'm like, I am, I'm like, I think we could just have like a rational conversation about this, but it, that seems to not work very well and with particular relationships. So yeah, just wondering if there's any principles in communicating those boundaries. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of boundaries and I get people to write out boundaries. I get them to read, sometimes read a book on boundaries. There's a few good ones. And uh, if I'm helping somebody design that, if it depends if I'm, you know, in my case, I might be working with just one person based, based on circumstance. I prefer to work if it's a couple to work with them together, right? And then as a therapist, I'm working to help them do that work of establishing boundaries. But if you're not in therapy or they're not in therapy or whoever, it, then then I really do encourage talking about boundaries. Now, I would say in the if you haven't had any discussion about boundaries at all, and then somebody violates what you consider to be a boundary then in that moment, it's probably not a time you're going to be able to really address it. And I would say to go to reflect on the boundary and um, that you want to set and reflect on the consequences that will happen if the boundary is not respected and talk to the person about that during a time when there's no conflict and nothing is going on, assuming there's willingness on their part to listen and, and engage in, in some way. And then, and then, and then talk about it because one thing about boundaries is they're not meant to control another person. They're meant to protect you. So if a boundary, you're, you're not setting it up. Like it might sometimes sound like an ultimatum perhaps, but it's really not meant to be an ultimatum to the other person. It's meant to say, listen, when you, when you do this, when you said this to me, it really hurt me or I felt you know, hurt or, or afraid or whatever it is, you know, and that's not okay. From now on, if that happens, this is what I'm prepared to do. And I want to let you know that whatever it is, it might be something small, but it might be something big. It depends a lot on the circumstance, but that's important. And then it's really important that you fall through when that happens again. And, and, and it, when that, to me, a lot of time, the boundary is I'm going to walk away from this situation right? Even just for an hour or something, whatever, but I'm not going to continue this. And that gets reinforced over and over again. Uh, as the boundary gets maintained. Now in family systems, we know that when you set a boundary that another person doesn't appreciate, they have a tendency to have a reaction. It could be a distancing reaction and they pull. And sometimes when they pull, they will pull other people in the system along with them, possibly. And so you get this 
the the dynamic that was this maybe it's four people or five people that are kind of like in some kind of circle gets pushed and maybe some people go over here and some people and then so there's a what happens with that pull whatever they're doing to do that is that it creates a tent a desire on some level i want the system back where it was even to the person who's setting the boundary and so there's a tendency to let that go right back the old pattern because it can't a person can't tolerate that that movement possibly but it's so important to maintain the boundary because if you maintain the boundary and maintain the boundary then the person the the system will change into a new formation has the potential it won't necessarily there's no guarantees but it has a greater potential of creating a new formation new dynamic once the person realizes no i i need to respect that boundary or i'm going to lose this relationship they're not going to go back to the old way and then that gets reinforced and then you get a whole new dynamic that's healthier for everybody in the system yeah you're bringing up a really important point in systems that that was really kind of new to me when i started thinking in terms of systems and that is systems have their own kind of pseudo homeostasis and if one person begins to change others in that system try to get get things back to the way they were so there can be an escalation in the attempt to try to get back to the old familiar dance mm -hmm. right and it takes a while to break out of that to break out of that to get enough momentum to break out of that old orbit into something different a new homeostasis so Um, I love this conversation. There's just so many points of wisdom. So I really appreciate that. And when I hear you talk about boundaries, uh, Dr. Jerry, what I what I get is it's living from a place of freedom, no matter what. And that is such a powerful place to live from. And and that does include play potentially, no matter if nobody else around you wants to play. So to have that sense of self, um, I've just, I've walked this journey for a while and I know when I met Dr. Peter, it's really to, to know that there's so much hope no matter what happens, no matter what happens. So I really appreciate the hope of all this. And then the other thing that comes to mind is St. John of the Cross, um, his statement of where, where there is no love, put love, there you will find love. And so that could be whatever, where there is no joy, put joy there, you will know joy. And so that's that's just coming up now as I hear you talk about um, how to navigate these difficult situations. So it's just really good to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. And when you said that, it made me think of that. The, I think Peter, uh, Dr. Peter put it in, in the, in the uh, newsletter, but I, I just wrote an article for the National Catholic Register and and I didn't have any, I had like two days. They gave me two days. <laughs> like last week they said, can you write an article on St. Dymphna and, and uh, for World uh, Mental Health Day? And so I did in two days. But I sat there with St. Dymphna's story and really struggled because this poor woman was, you know, chased by her father and if murdered by her father because he wanted to marry her. And that was tough. And that's where I thought, well... St. Maria Goretti is not exactly the same, but it's pretty close in some ways. She was murdered by somebody that was trying to, uh, you know, sexually take advantage of her. And, 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 I, and, I, and we don't know all the details of St. Dymphna's story. I bet there's more that happened that we just don't have recorded, right? But in, in St. Maria's, I was really struck by, you know, her forgiving Alessandro, first of all. 
and then her mother forgiving Alessandro later as well. And and I and I as I wrote, I, I like I literally to myself thought, if someone did that to my daughter, I don't think I could forgive them. And but that's me, that's me, my human self. My human self would not be able to forgive such a person. But when I thought about it some more, my inmost self, the deepest part of my heart, right? Both reflects the grace, you know, the image of God. The space in my deepest spiritual center where grace comes, where the Holy Spirit dwells, in, in St. Teresa of Avila's interior castle, it's that bridal chamber at the core where Jesus is. That place is God. God can work through me. So even though I might not be able to tolerate something, he might be able to do it through me. And God, and I could only depend on that because I don't know that I could in, in, that exa- in those examples. I, I, I resist setting anybody up to be a martyr. <laughs> we don't want to be martyrs. But in that sense, in a, in a, in a, not in the spiritual sense of a martyr, but in a, you know, like the human sense of being a martyr, being, being a mat that people step over and, you know, be people be just ta- being taken advantage of and all this. I don't want any of that. But I do wonder, I think when, as a married person, there are times when spiritual, supernatural grace seems to be needed to be like, to be like, get over myself sometimes and be loving and choose to be sacrificial at times not in a not in a self-deprecating way at all but in a way that is truly like desiring their good if somebody's been treating you terribly that's very hard to do but i do think at least in 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 certain contexts like marriage we are called to at least try we can't control whether the other person will respond so, Dr. Jerry, we've got some questions coming in. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, let's take one here, and then we'll go back to some folks that might want to ask out loud. And so I have one here that says, my question is, I find it hard to find or differentiate if I'm standing up for myself or if I'm just being too sensitive to correction out of pride when dealing with some family members. So how do you make... How do you make the distinction there? What are your thoughts on this? What's the difference between, you know, standing up for yourself, setting those appropriate boundaries, setting those limits and being oversensitive, being, being too resistant to, to being corrected or to being, to having things pointed out? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What a great question. Cause I think really what you're talking about might be two different parts. (laughs) So, you know, I think that it's okay, right, to have an advocate part that wants to stand up, that that will stand up, right? And it's okay to say, no, that's not okay. Or that was painful, that was hurtful, and that that's not okay. I think that's really important. I also think we have parts that are oversensitive sometimes, but usually the oversensitivity comes from a place of woundedness, right? Any kind of behavior, like even the narcissistic kind of self-centeredness is that is a part react, trying to over kind of overcompensating to protect something. So, so maybe it's okay that you might have a part that can be oversensitive and a part that advocates and either way, because you could have an advocating part that is burdened in some way and is not 
self-led, so to speak, that is way over the top. Right? You, we've all encountered people who like are so overreactive, maybe because they because they've been hurt or they've seen other people hurt, and they just want to make it's a justice thing. Like I, I, you know, I really can't let that happen. And so, but also people that are oversensitive that react to everything like it's it's an injury. But again, that's an attempt to protect. So either way, it's the same process, I think, right, Dr. Peter, as we do with any of our parts is we want to spend some time with them. We want to affirm what it is they're trying to protect and, and the good intention that's under that. And we need to guide that part to discover possible new ways. Like I can appreciate your advocacy, like this part of me, I can appreciate that you're an advocate and you want to have justice and that you're sensitive to this issue. Wow. That's amazing. But, you know, let's, let's explore what it is that makes you, you know, bulldoze over people in your attempt to get that justice or, or, you know, or be so sensitive that you're, you know, so, so again, but, but I am thinking to myself a little bit, I'm talking theoretically and what would be nice to do in a session or nice to do in your holy hour or something like that to self-reflect. But in the moment, and somebody says something that seems critical to you, <laughs> and you in that moment, what do you do? And that takes a lot of practice, I think, to slow down and recognize, oh, my parts are being activated, various parts are being activated, and, and pause long enough, recollect long enough, and maybe, right, from a place of self to be able to do a little fact checking, right? Because I think a curiosity response, right, uh, would be, oh, do I always do that? Am I always saying that? Whatever, I'm imagining they're, they're, you're being criticized for something. And, and, and to be able to go, like, to honestly ask the person that seems to be critical of you, is that... Is that hurting? Is that hurting you? Is that something I do often? I didn't realize I did that, right? A, cur a curiosity response around it. And so that you're no longer, you're not like defending yourself against, oh, uh, and you're not advocating, you're not having to stand up for yourself, you're not having, but you're not also being oversensitive in that moment. So I really, as I'm saying all this, I'm thinking curiosity is, is the key. Does that resonate for you too, Dr. Peter? It does. It does. I would, I would add one thing in that a lot of times, if there's a part that's coming up that feels really raw, you know, feels really exposed, or really the word, I guess, was sensitive that we've been using, that could be an exile too. Often that's not really a protector part in my experience. That's a part mm. that has, um, that has uh, come up and is kind of, has maybe blended, is revealing the need, you know, the need for protection and may really feel unprotected in that times. And, and the protectors may not be in a place to be able to protect very well. And so there's a, a lot of exposure and a lot of vulnerability in those kind of moments as well. So there can be these windows in which parts can really get re-injured pretty readily. So it goes back to that whole idea that you had brought up at the beginning of really protect, really, really taking care of your own parts, you know, and recognizing that before we engage with somebody who can be really activating or polarizing for our parts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sometimes in those interactions, there'll be parts of others that are trying to protect themselves by attacking parts of you. And that, that, that can be really hard to appreciate 
but there may be ways that in that dance in that dynamic that there's part that they're pulling for an exile to to rewound in order to create the distance so that you'll go away you know or something like that to kind of create the space and so to recognize not only what my parts are doing but what the others parts are doing and how those parts are interacting and we did a little bit of that with Thomas and Juanita in the uh, in the podcast episodes and then also in the weekly reflections that came out around there about how those parts interacted can really shed a lot of light on what the dynamic is that's driving this. And to also recognize that it's not all of the other person. It's not all of me. It's these parts that happen to be really prominent in the moment. I see Madeline had a question. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so I, I found this whole narcissistic subsystem, you know, fascinating, but it, it took me quite a while to kind of figure out what you were really, I couldn't get a handle on it until Dr. Peter, you said something, you emphasized the valuing and devaluing dynamic. And that I kind of grabbed onto because that made me think of, of my mother. And I started thinking, oh my gosh, I think I, that fits. I think my mother was, had this strong, like devaluing kind of thing. And so that, that was very helpful. And now I have lost my question. <laughs> That's okay. It's all it was, good. I mean, it's so that, so my work now, I think certainly is dealing with that. And I remember I remember something that Vanderkolk said in his book that we have to, to heal from trauma, we have to know what we know and feel what we feel. And so with my mother obviously is, is, you know, is dead. So I, and I could never have worked anything out with her. I'm very, very aware of her own woundedness. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I wasn't as a child, of course, but, and I would get angry when she hurt me. And, you know, we had a, a really, com uh, you know, very difficult relationship for sure. But I always loved her. Um, I think what I'm dealing with now, sorry, is just I cannot find. I can't feel what I feel and know what I know yet. You know, um, mm -hmm. because I didn't know what I was dealing with. You know, and I didn't know how it affected me how it affected, how I affected my children, how some of my children are affecting their children, this intergenerational thing. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't think I, I, I think, I think maybe my, what my question was, is it accurate? Like, is that valuing and devaluing thing kind of the kernel? Is it what defines narcissism? Um, like it because i see that in my mom mm. does that mean that she was she had had strong narcissistic tendencies am i right in at attaching that label i think that was my question and and into myself and when i see it in in one of my children particularly you, you know what what's interesting to me when i was you know reviewing all the things dr peter's been been going over a narcissism was it was occurring to me that on some level we're all narcissists and <laughs> that 
you know, and maybe not clinical, I guess, whatever, but in that the people that stand out, right, especially the overt ones, their parts are taking such an extreme role or such a role, like such a, maybe a harsh position, you know, or very biting in their language or very, you know, cuts you to the core or just feels like it's a devaluing, right, of the other person. Again, as a, but we all, maybe we all have parts that sometimes do that, maybe not in that extreme way, right? When it really stands out when somebody's, you know, rather, rather um, hurt, like extremely hurtful, but we all kind of have those dynamics. Now we, and we all have the possibility of it. And, you know, and so maybe there's just different different ways, right? Unfortunately, I mean that in my book, I have a whole chapter on, I call it original trauma. And it's that intergenerational aspect of the fall. It's not just sin. Yes, it's sin. Of course, it's sin, original sin. But, but we're, we're passing on trauma, right, generationally. And we do that. And that's unfortunately a, 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 a factor of being in a fallen world. And that is painful. And I think it's painful when we're, you know, in the middle and we see how our parents have hurt us. And then we see maybe in ways which we've hurt our own kids. And that could send us into a place of sadness, despair, or whatnot. But but it could also soften, right? It could also soften. It, you could also, you know, there's some level of acceptance of our humanity. And it can be a thing of motivating toward love. Like I'm thinking in that being, if you're in the middle space, you know, you haven't, maybe you have an elderly, I'm not necessarily talking about you, Madeline, but like having an elderly parent, maybe, and having also having children like that middle space and, you know, and then you end up doing some, you're caretaking a parent that may have hurt you in various ways. And at the same time, you're taking care of your kids who sometimes are really dysfunctional in various ways. <laughs> and so you're in that space. And I think when you, you could get bitter about it, of course, but you could also soften and realize, whoa, we're all broken. This is part of being human. And this is, and what do I want to do? And that could soften a person. I think it has the potential to soften us toward loving, extraordinary loving in that case. And even if the parent is passed away, you know, and through prayer is there can be a softening and saying, mom, I see your brokenness now. Clearly, I see your beauty, I see your strength, I see your qualities, but I see how your trauma has really, really damaged you and others, but I forgive you and I love you. And that softening can be very powerful. And it can then spill over to your children or their children, possibly whatever, uh, or didn't outside the family too. I mean, it, to me, I think that's a wisdom. There's a deep wisdom in that. Well, thank you. I think I I think that is sort of my tendency. It's just what came to like in listening through this and and sort of thinking of this devaluing dynamic, valuing and devaluing, uh, that kind of gave me a focus to understand mm -hmm. what I had mm -hmm. never understood, and mm -hmm. that it never really. I knew my mom hurt me, but I never understood what was going on, mm -hmm. and I've never understood those tendencies in myself until you know understanding that valuing and devaluing thing um but thank you for so is that so does that define narcissism like if you're just going to take one thing 
let, is that let a- me now no let me let me let me nuance that because i remember that being your original question madeline and i i would say no idealizing and devaluing that's a little further down the chain it's a reaction to what's going on inside if I have to sum up what is the central dynamic around a narcissistic presentation, it has to do with this deep sense of inner emptiness, of inner meaninglessness, of of, of perhaps shame. And so what people who are struggling with narcissistic tendencies, what they're struggling with are integrity needs more than attachment needs. They're really focused on integrity needs, including the question of, do I exist? If you feel empty or hollow inside, if a, if, a, if an exile is carrying a burden of being a no thing, you know, a nothing, then there's this, there's this pull to start idealizing or devaluing, idealizing the people who will infuse you with external affirmation who will tell you that you're important. So they idealize people that will idealize them in return. And then to devalue people who have somehow wounded or threatened that very fragile sense of self-worth. That's the central dynamic because other personality styles will idealize and devalue too. You'll see that with what's called the hysterical style or histrionic style. Uh, you'll see that in in what are sometimes called borderline presentations. So idealizing and devaluing isn't unique to narcissistic styles, but it's used differently. Somebody from a hysterical or histrionic style will idealize and devalue in order to get attachment needs met, not integrity needs. Well, that's very interesting. Thank so, you. So yeah, we want to we want to see that a little bit more as like a, a symptom or a little further down the causal chain. Than what the core central issue is. Thanks, Dr. Peter, and thank you, Dr. Jerry. Yeah. I love how you put that. <laughs> no, that's really enlightening, even for me, like to think about it as terms of identity. I don't know why I didn't quite think about it quite that way, but it makes a lot of sense. Well, that's one of the differences in our in our training, right? I mean, I, I was trained psychoanalytically as well. And so yeah, we we did very much try to get at what's the core struggle what's the core tension from which other things flow in these different personality styles so mm-hmm. and on julianne i think it's julianne had a question hi um so i'm brand new i've maybe been listening for about two months and i thought i feel like i'm just drinking from a deep well <laughs> of um just it's just so fulfilling uh in my journey of where the Lord's taken me thus far. And I find myself, this seemed like a good segue because you brought up elderly parents. <laughs> and that's what, I, that's, that's what I'm dealing with. Um, my mother died about, uh, well, June a year ago. There are four siblings, I'm the oldest. My mother was so convinced that my father would die before her um, because of his Parkinson's and various other neurological things he has going on that he didn't even she didn't put him in the will as the next in line for executor. So I ended up becoming executor. And this has just brought a whole host of uh, (laughs) cascading things that I never expected that have you know, it's 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 as it's as though my siblings and myself too. I've entered deep into early childhood wounds. All of us have, 
and I'm I'm I heard one of you say you know hold the boundaries you know I'm the only one that's been working at this stuff so <laughs> I'm I've I'm the ostracized one for many reasons and I am trying to make sense of all of this but it's um, this has been one of the most painful journeys in my life at the, at culminating now with the, my mother's death it caused me to ask the question gee was my mom the glue to to the family that that kept us civil with one another like the discord level that that is taking place right now um, is so high and then and it's all centered around now that my father's nearly bedridden and these end of life issues I mean but he's not actively dying but you know we're all four practicing Catholics my dad is a, a daily communicant because my mother brother is a priest who lives there with him and he <laughs> says mass every day so we have six people that are practicing Catholics and we're in discord with one another about these end of life issues um i i was stripped i'll say it that way of being medical power of attorney i see the lord's hand in it uh, i was my father's medical power of attorney now my sister is and that's that's a burden that's released for me but um he that she brought in hospice and they were almost on a one-year anniversary and I guess if I'm trying to get to the question, I'm sorry. <laughs> There's a lot, to a little bit of dumping here. Um, things got so bad that my own spiritual director said, unplug. So for the summer, I wasn't talking to any of them, just unless it was necessary through my husband. And that gave me the space to like, you know, do some of what y'all are saying, the woundedness. Oh, everybody's, you know, got their issues and I don't have to blame anybody anymore. Um, so I was so thrilled to hear when you on this narcissistic thing, because I'd go back and forth like, am I a narcissist? Are they narcissists? And, and it was like, oh, we can have narcissistic parts. Like that makes <laughs> sense. And I can embrace that. I can embrace that. But because th there's such a black and white thinking out in the world right now. And so I like the nuance here. So trying to re-enter and reestablish relationship, I think I wounded them by going on sabbatical, even though it was announced, I'm taking a sabbatical. I can't, I won't be talking to y'all because my spiritual director told me to do that. I think I wounded them in that, you know, it's like they felt abandoned all over again, perhaps. And, and I might be projecting. I mean, there's just, whatever there's so many things i'm trying so to figure out let, let me throw out something here just a thought um <laughs> okay. when, you, when you think about systems um and so on a lot of family systems don't resolve a lot of issues they're just they're not good at it a lot of times there's rules in the family like we don't talk about problems or we just get over things or mom just handles it in some way behind the scenes or something. There's all these like rules and then they're off, they're not usually written. They're usually just understood rules. And so there's a lot of unresolved issues with mom, unresolved issues with dad, unresolved issues with both of them, with each other, within a lot of families. But they all kind of go underground most of the time because most families aren't going into family therapy, right? So nothing throws that like Dorothy flying out of Kansas, like somebody dying or 
who actually dies, like a parent. Nothing throws, and I would now, now that I'm IFS informed, nothing throws a person's parts all over the place and activates multiple parts with narcissistic ones and other parts, uh, like a parent who is in the process of dying or who actually dies. And you see the worst kind of family ruptures, the worst kind of family fights and arguments when a parent dies, when a parent is sick and people have to make decisions around health and life issues. So I, I'm only saying that to say, to give all your whole family maybe some grace, <laughs> that that's what happens. And, and I don't know that I have a solution for you, except that if, if your family, if they're all Catholic and if they all, if there's a love there, which I expect there is, maybe there's a, there's a way to sit and actually not accuse sit together and just have a space where we're not going to accuse each other, but maybe we all can share maybe from our hearts, what's been hard. And we all just. Right. And I'd like to get, I'd like to extend that invitation. I I wrote a letter and saying, I don't think you all know me. And I kind of said, here's been my life. You know, I said, let's change that. You know, here's, here's. Sometimes you need a family therapist to facilitate that is what be my advice. Like sometimes you, you can do that on your own and maybe you can. But sometimes if somebody that's objective that can just like hear everybody might really help. Um, I agree. It, and we tried to, yes, I've tried to pull in whether it's, I know a priest isn't quite the psychologist or the facilitator, you know, they're a facilitator in a different way. Depends on the priest. Like, yeah. <laughs> depends on the priest. Yeah. Right. And, and they don't, they won't, they don't seem to respond to that either. It's, it's, um, and that was back in April. It's like, you know, we're, we're dissolving away. Let's bring in a facilitator. And, you know, one person is like, well, I'm not paying for that. And I'm like, I didn't say it would cost anything. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> It's, there's just this resistance, this resistance. And finally, I, I became so wounded that I find myself, and I mean these words that I'm about to say, but I, and I, they sound so depressing, but I'm not depressed about it. But I came to the conclusion that uh, I don't think we ever really loved one another, like in the authentic way that God desires us to know one another and love one another authentically. I don't think I've ever loved them or they have loved me. They haven't known me. I haven't known them to end up where we are now. It's just, it's just, it's like, so the, uh, some other person mentioned delusion. I'm saying it's like the illusion of, wow, we, we didn't really have a family. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm at the point of just, I love them because God created them and he is present in them. That's all I can give right now. Yeah. That's all I can give. Now that feels sad as I say it. Yeah. That I feel the sadness of that. I would like it to be different, but I, I'm, <laughs> I can't believe I'm feeling something right now about this. This is a good thing. It's a very, it's, there's a lot of grief for me, at least in this. And so, I have so to, I, uh... I, it sounds like your spiritual director had some wisdom and it really just sounds like you needing time to heal the wounds that you have before you could consider engaging them in a way, in a way that you want to, it might just be really important. Like take care of your parts that are hurt before you can just walk in and somehow magically get everybody loving each other again or whatever it is. Right. Cause that feels like fantasy. Yeah. And when, and when there's a death in the family, 
you have a lightning rod for any other unresolved grief from any other parts to start coming up. You know, grief about, you know, a whole host of things because there's something very clear that's socially acceptable to be grieving about. So there's a lot of grief and loss that comes up and then a lot of defending against the intensity of that grief and loss and a lot of misattributing where that may be going because, you know, it might not be clear. So it's it's a really tumultuous time. And if the family has had difficulty uh, before in being able to connect at this kind of level, it's going to be even more difficult when there's all that intensity. So, you know, I think, Dr. Jerry, your idea of like really, again, caring for your own parts, maybe bringing in some some outside help, allowing some time to pass and playing the long game, you know, really playing playing for the long haul uh, instead of trying to resolve things, you know, really quickly, uh, even if there are details to be worked out about the house and the, the estate and, you know, the, the, the finances and all of that. To, to kind of keep that long haul perspective in, in mind as well. Yes, I applied for your um, upcoming St. Francis Xavier group. And, I, get, <laughs> and if, I hope I get accepted. Like that can't start soon enough for me because this, part, this, this parts thing is so, the language is like everything I've said uh, that I've been speaking to, but I didn't know what I was speaking about. You know, it, it's like I said, y'all are the refreshing well of which I know I'm going to be able to drink and drink and drink and um and become that integrated human being that I've been so desirous of that I've been speaking that word integration for 13 years has been on my heart. Um, so wow. yeah, I thank you. Thank you so much. I think we have a question from Barbara. Oh, hello. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I just to get I just kind of get personal, I guess a little bit been married for 28 years. My husband was like diagnosed with what we thought for many years when I thought I was dealing with like a major depression, but very tumultuous, like things that I thought should be handled here were like, all of a sudden we were at the moon level with conversations like how in the world did we get to the moon? We're just trying to talk here. So for years and years and years, and he, he did have some quite intensive therapy through that, but it wasn't until things started getting worse and worse and worse. And to the point where I think my cousin said, well, you know, he's you know, trying to manipulate you to control you. I'm like, well, what the heck is that? Totally, like totally blew my mind that what I was like, experiencing was like, and I don't even like the word someone initially said, I don't like to put labels, but it really was like an emotionally abusive thing, which now I totally, you know, three, three years into it now, it escalated to the point where it was, it was very, very bad. So he actually moved out and that was part of our breaking point, met with the priest and the priest actually recommended divorce and which was like, Wow, never. I mean, this was a very faithful, very our local priest. And we and we had been through a string of counselors. And you know, back to that, even what I've read in all this, like I ran into Lundy Bancroft, you know, the, the legendary, I'm sure if you heard him or not, but let read lots and lots and lots about the why or the how, not the how, but the what of emotional abuse, but not the how do you solve it. When I met with like the diocese, she said, This is such a huge problem that if you ever figure out how to combine the psychology that you're reading about with the spiritual, you'd have to open up the doors to our civic center. There's just so much. And the, what has been most healing for me has just been like connecting with other people and then bringing, mm -hmm. just not feeling so alone. Gosh, I wasn't going to get emotional because I thought I would really work through it anyway. But um, 
one of the people that I've run across, and mostly it's been self-help and I've gotten a lot of therapy and, and what, I'm still trying to work things out with my husband. We actually only got better because I found out, discovered that he had been kind of going online. And, and that was like, almost like holding up a mirror to him. Like, this is not all me and I'm willing to accept my part, but, but you have issues too. And I think that's what finally a little bit to some extent, and in my heart, I knew the day that I discovered it, it was going to be a game changer for us. And it's, it's been veering out, although it's still been tumultuous um, to try to find that still, but, you know, doing a lot of self-help, doing a lot of therapy. But one of the people I ran across was Dr. Romani, I've heard of her not, but she talks about this radical acceptance. And I think that's possibly Eastern based, but when I started just, and I, th that was before I ran into your work and your, your stuff, but that gave me, I think that reminded me when you were first talking about taking care of yourself, you can't change them and just trying to really stay focused on myself. But also I didn't know, number one, I was, that brought me some kind of weird peace but I also know that there has to be boundaries. It can't just be this radical acceptance and you accept everything carte blanche. But I guess my specific questions were, do you know if there's any support group models that exist for the IFS? I know there's like one of the resources that I ran across was, um, oh, it's like a 12-step like program for um, uh, families of dysfunctional or something like that. Uh, can't remember the name of it, but it's it's. I got, I got that recommendation from someone looking for like, I'm just trying to still look for a model. And I know I'm very heavily in the cognitive. I was raised that way, but looking for, and I, I maybe speak to your own support group that you guys have come up or whatever you guys call it, but um, specifically mm -hmm. about the radical acceptance is one of, one of my particular questions and, and the support group outside of our, so that's my questions. Yeah, well, there's, there have been some that have been around for a long time that are more secular in nature. Jay Early has some online groups. Uh, Bonnie Weiss has some online groups. The Resilient Catholics community is really about human formation. It's not primarily a support group. I don't, I don't know that any of those would be thought of primarily as a support group, but okay. sort of more, more than that, actually. Okay. You know, because there is this radical acceptance of our own parts as they are in the moment with the struggles that they have, with the burdens that they carry, with the extreme roles that they may, that they may be taking on. And, you know, when we can really accept our own parts, when we can really accept where our parts are, what their burdens are, what their roles are. And we can be okay with that, not that we endorse it all or that we say it's okay or minimize any of the dysfunction or problems with any of that, but we can just accept the reality of that. It makes it easier to accept those same kinds of things in other people. Anything that we reject within ourselves as unacceptable, uh, anything that we reject in ourselves as, as, as not tolerable, we're also going to reject similar parts with similar issues, similar roles or burdens in other people. And so if we can have this, as you put it, radical acceptance of our own system and everything that's in there, and it takes some real humility, it takes some real vulnerability to do that. 
then we're in a much better position to be able to accept that in another person. But we want to be doing that in a thoughtful, wise way so that we're not, you know, opening ourselves up to to further harm or abuse. And you're, you're talking about the Saint Z, the, the, the upcoming group that's going to be formed. Yeah. Okay, so this is sure. the, res, the, the resilient, yeah, the resilient Catholics community. I'll talk a little okay. bit more about that at okay. the end okay. too. Sounds good. Um, but yeah, the resilient Catholics community is about the, the human formation, shoring up that natural foundation for the spiritual life. And it does involve a lot of getting to know ourselves. There's there's three overarching goals in the resilient Catholics community. The first one is to tolerate being loved across all your parts. To to and that tolerate that means you have to tolerate them being known and and understood. So tolerating being loved. The second is to embrace your identity as a beloved little child of God, the Father of Mary our mother, a beloved little daughter or a beloved little son. And again, that's across all your parts, that no part's left out of that. And then the third thing is to reflect that love back, to reflect that love that we can take in from God, to reflect that love back to ourselves, to our parts in need, to, to, to God and to our neighbor, and our neighbor in all their parts. And so those are the, the, that's the three overarching goals. And what we focus on is what's going on in the natural realm that gets in the way of that what's happening that we're not accepting within ourselves what's happening that's unresolved or disordered within ourselves and how can we from a systems perspective understanding parts how can we bring in that order and what saint thomas aquinas would call that self-governance so that we can have this ordered self-love because we cannot according to saint thomas love our neighbor more than we love ourselves and so we want to really do this, not because it's some sort of narcissistic navel gazing, you know, psychological day spa where, you know, I'm okay, you're okay. And we're just pampering ourselves. No, we, we actually need to learn to love ourselves in order to be able to love our neighbor and to love God in an ordered way as well. So. Thank you very, very much. My counselor, my very good Catholic psychiatrist counselor said the goal of all of our lives should be to know ourselves more and more each day. So thank you very much. Yeah, you're welcome, Barbara. You're welcome. So, did you have something you wanted to add to that, Dr. Jerry? Um, no, I, 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 I have some very limited familiarity with the radical acceptance. Now, I, I'm, I'm forgetting the name of the author. It wasn't the name you gave, like it was Cornfield or somebody. That is definitely a Buddhist background. And, and there's another author that's a big name in that whole, that whole genre of approach. And what I have found is that if you're, if you're raised in an environment where emotions are not allowed and all of your feelings are always discounted and sometimes even in certain religious upbringings where it's always about, you know, outward appearance and always about rigidly following these rules or in some cases, like I've worked with some, and I'm thinking at the moment, I mean, certainly there's Catholic examples, but I've worked with a few people that come from really rigid fundamentalist Christian backgrounds and where it's all about the mission and all about evangelizing others, but never about like loving each other, caring for you. You're not even allowed to have emotions. I just, it, it was something that I discovered. And when, when people like that have that experience, read some of those books. And I would say, you know, I, I would of course have some issues with, with the Buddhists, some aspects of Buddhism, of course, but 
but I think it's almost like so desperately needed. Like they don't have any sense of just what it is to be accepted for who you are and that all your emotions are okay. The closest Catholic counterpart, I think would be, one of them would be Dr. Conrad Barris's work because he talks about emotional deprivation. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's getting at that same thing. So if you're raised in an environment that is emotionally deprived, he really speaks to that and how the effects of that. And in his books, I'm not remembering, I'm terrible with memory names. I'll tell my head sometimes, but, but, you know, some of his books really speak to how to open that up and discover that, yeah, you can start feeling your feelings and it's okay. And I can accept those. Dr. Jerry, we had a question here. The, uh, the question is this. Do narcissists or others with a lack of affective empathy have a harder time making sense of IFS? My husband has been seeing an IFS therapist and says it doesn't make sense to him. He has an immense degree of cognitive empathy from voraciously watching movies, reading literature, etc. Hmm. Yeah, I think that I think that as I'm thinking about this, that uh, narcissists perhaps are so well defended against really looking deeply at their interior lives that they don't allow themselves or anybody else to get close to it. So it's like a foreign concept. And I've experienced that in doing parts work with some people like, so most of the clients I work with like tend to take to parts work like a fish in the ocean. Like they just go, like it just flows so nicely. Maybe it's because I have a lot of clients who are Catholic, that do a lot of prayer and maybe practice some contemplative prayer and this kind of thing. So they just get it. But once in a while I come across a client, it's just like, you might as well be talking to a brick wall. Like they have no idea what you're saying. And they have no, like there's, it's like a wall. And if I was to characterize those those clients and I'm generalizing here, of course, but it is, like they're so well defend like they don't want to look inside they just don't and it and because and and so that actually breaks my heart a little bit to think about that that what happened that that was their adaptive measure was to put up such a wall against emotion against you know understanding the self because those same people might have learned behaviors that help them function with other people, but they're actually not good at really and truly understanding other people's feelings as well. So it really is. Yeah, there's there's a difference between sensitivity and empathy. And again, the uh, the uh, the person here, the the one asking the question, was making a difference between cognitive empathy and uh, and affective empathy, and that's a distinction that sometimes gets made, but. I'm not even sure that when there's parts that have strong narcissistic tendencies that it's really even cognitive empathy. Sometimes it's just sensitivity. Sometimes it's just being able to sort of sense it in another person, but that's not necessarily, that's not necessarily empathy at all, uh, cognitive or affective. So like when we, so, I know you haven't, uh, I don't know if you're going to do uh, a series on, you know, sociopaths or psychopaths or anything. Yeah, we're going to get into psychopaths. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, I, I was sort of amazed. Like, I, I do think that sociopaths, as I understand it, you know this better than me and with your training, but <laughs> would be like, they're kind of operating by, because they figured out the rules of society and they're following those rules and they get by and they, they, they fool everybody because they're good at behavior 
you know, they're be, they figure out behaviors that work. And that's really right, different right. than actually being attuned with other people and have empathy or even sensitivity, like to, to have any kind of like real sense of connection with people. It's really, to me, it feels like the opposite of that. I think I mentioned this in the gaslighting episode, but yeah, Charles Manson would read how to win friends and influence people. Right. You know, he was studying how to gaslight or how to manipulate, yeah. you know, and, yeah. uh, and, uh, you know, they operate off of scripts and things like that. So, so yeah. So do we have time for one more question, Dr. Jerry, are you willing to stick sure. for one more before we wrap <laughs> it up? Okay. And this is not something that I know as much about because it flows from what we were asking before. Does a lack of empathy present itself differently in a person who is narcissistic versus an autistic person? When I described my spouse to a therapist, they said my spouse could be autistic. I'm especially considering this because I have opened up pain with great depth to my spouse and it doesn't, and he doesn't seem to be, or she doesn't seem to be able to integrate it. Mm. Well, autism is on a spectrum. So um, you, you, I would think there's you know quite a difference between a high functioning autistic person, a low functioning, or there's a range. Um, but in general, like that is, that is a neurological, you know, issue that that is characterized by not actually understanding social dynamics very well. So, you know, there's so much as humans that we don't teach each other directly, but we all kind of figure out and we there's unspoken rules of social dynamics that we all kind of figure out. But people with autism don't aren't typically able to do that or it's very difficult for them to figure that out again it's a continuum so it's not like everybody is it's not a zero factor and so i think with empathy that's part of it because if empathy in my definition would be the ability to feel someone else's feelings along with them but if you can't even figure out the social dynamics at play you can't put yourself in someone else's shoes to understand their perspective that's pretty characteristic of autism. You have to do a lot of work with autistic kids, for example, to help them walk them through scenarios to help them see, oh, okay, how would this person feel in this situation? How would that person feel? And you're teaching them as best as you can how to navigate those social situations. So it's not a lack of, it's not like, like it wouldn't typically be like, I don't care. So unlike a, like maybe a, a you know, a, a, a dangerous sociopath, like they, they, they actually have malice or something, perhaps it's not malice. It's just simply a, a lack of ability to process cognitively the social dynamics of play, let alone actually understanding someone else's feelings at a deep personal level. But I've seen autistic people who feel very deeply though. So it's not to say they have no feelings because they may feel very deeply about things, but they might not know how to handle the intensity of those emotions, right? Because they often, it's an yeah. overload, an oversensitivity sometimes. Um, so it's a, but that's a great question, a very complex one. <laughs> well, I am so grateful to all of you for having been here in our live audience today i'm grateful for those also that are listening in and and have invested and have gotten through uh, this whole series on narcissism 
you are the whole reason why we do this. And I'm I'm very grateful to to you, Dr. Jerry Crete, for being here with us tonight. It's been such a, a pleasure, such an honor to be able to hear your wisdom, your experience, your perspectives on this. Dr. Jerry has this book coming out, and it's January 16th. I can't wait. January 16th, 2024. It's called Litanies of the Heart, Relieving Post-Traumatic Stress and Calming Anxiety Through Healing Our Parts. It's actually available for pre-order on Amazon right now. And I read the book, and I was honored to to write the foreword to the book as well. And this is my little like like my little endorsement. I just thought I would read it to you. And I say, no other book is better suited to help Catholics understand and embrace the good in internal family systems and other parts and systems based approaches through clinical vignettes, psychological and biblical studies, reflection questions, experiential exercises, and and meditations. Dr. Jerry makes parts work come alive. For Catholics who seek interior integration as a prerequisite for loving God, neighbor, and themselves deeply and in a more ordered way. I'm really, really excited about this book coming out. So I'm encouraging you to check that out as well. Again, the Resilient Catholics community, you can check that out at soulsandhearts.com slash RCC. We are reopening the Resilient Catholics community in December. It opens every December and January for a new cohort. We're going to be onboarding our sixth cohort, the St. Francis Xavier cohort. We have over 200 people in the Resilient Catholics community right now. And it's there's lots of information about that at soulsandhearts.com slash RCC. The beautiful thing about it is that you don't have to do this alone that we do it together in community, with companions, in companies, within our cohorts. There's all kinds of ways that we can connect on that journey. We have 44 weekly lessons that we go through over the course of a year. It's very structured and it's very geared to helping people in this step-by-step progression to really shore up the natural foundations for their, their spiritual life. Just going to invite people to know that that I have my conversation hours every Tuesday and Thursday from 4.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. You can reach me on my cell phone, 317-567-9594. And also remember that there are weekly reflections that have been coming out. Though we've, we're just, we've just wrapped up a series on daydreams and how you can connect with your parts through your daydreams. And you can check out the back issues of those weekly reflections at soulsandhearts.com slash blog. Also, check out Dr. Jerry's new article that just came out. This is the National Catholic Register. It's on St. Dymphna. And I'm trying to remember the title of it. It's St. Dymphna and then St. Maria Goretti. And I'm trying to remember the rest of the title. And the litanies, and the litanies of, the heart. of the heart. And the litanies of the heart. Right. Yeah. And speaking of the litanies of the heart, we have the litanies of the heart. Dr. Jerry wrote the litany of the, the closed heart, the litany of the wounded heart, and the litany of the fearful heart. Those are on our website, soulsandhearts.com slash lit, L-I-T, all lowercase. We've got those in downloadable PDFs. We've also got those in audio versions. We've got them in printed versions that we can mail to you. 
Uh, so really invite those because those prayers are so beautiful because they are, are attachment based. They're really they really take into consideration the attachment needs and the integrity needs that drive so much of our parts impulses. And so we really want to really want to make those available to folks. So again, I'm so gratified that that we can be here together, Dr. Jerry. I want to give you like another opportunity to just say any any final thoughts before we before we close for tonight. Oh, wow. Uh, no, I just thank you all for being here and listening. And I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed all your questions. And I'm so excited at the energy around bringing a, a parts work approach and, and integrating that with our faith and a whole understanding of the human person. And so I have been especially encouraged. I'm encouraged by all of you. I'm encouraged by a lot of the energy that I've had in talking with coaches and priests and spiritual directors who are also learning about this model. And so I'm feeling a little overwhelmed <laughs> with blessings. And I think that's a good thing. <laughs> uh, but uh, um, this, I'm, a, I'm a bit of hobbit sometimes. So sometimes I want to crawl into my hole. And I feel like I'm being pushed right out into, uh, into the adventure. So th thank you for uh, Dr. Peter for everything you're doing in this as well. Well, thank you again, Dr. Jerry. And at this point, I'm going to invite you all to unmute, if you would be willing to unmute yourselves, and we'll invoke our patroness and our patron, our patroness and our patron who help prepare the way for the Lord, our lady who is uh, who is under her title of undoer of knots. She prepared the way for the Lord by offering her body, her womb, her whole body for him, and then St. John the Baptist who prepared the way for the Lord by, by proclaiming his coming. And so all together, as we invoke our patroness and our patron, our lady, our mother, untire of knots. Pray for us. Pray for us. St. John the Baptist. Pray for us. Pray for us. Pray for us.